You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we're extremely excited to be talking about Cypress, Cypress.io. Joining me to talk about this is Gleb Bakhmatov. Gleb is a uh, JavaScript ninja, an image processing expert, a software quality fanatic, and most importantly, a distinguished engineer at Cypress.io. Gleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Rob, and I hope you're doing excellent too. I am. And so before we jump into all things Cypress, uh, we are going to thank our sponsors. So today, our sponsor is Kendo React. Kendo React is a professional UI and data visualization component library. Designed and built from the ground up specifically for React, Kendo React can augment any existing UI stack. Its 90-plus feature-rich components and advanced functionality make it the perfect suite to standardize on and remove much of the complexity of working with multiple UI solutions. To find out more, check them out at progress.co slash modernweb. That's P-R-G-R-E-S-S dot C-O slash modernweb. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. First of all, I, I had done a little research before we'd sat down and have this conversation, and you are an absolutely fascinating person. Um, for people that don't know, uh, Gleb is a is actually a PhD, has got, got a doctorate in um, from from Purdue University, right? What was your doctorate in? In computer vision. So comp imagine computer graphics. That's when you render a free model and you're trying to render it as realistically as possible, right? Think you know computer graphics in in movies. But there is the inverse problem where you have a real world outside of you and you want to capture it in a 3D model so you can render it later. And it's much, much harder problem. So I worked on panoramas. You know, think of panoramas where you can look around like Google Street View. But if you try to move, everything breaks down because there is no geometry. It's, it's literally the most accurate representation from one point of view. And so I worked on panoramas and kind of enhancing them with 3D information. And at some point, I was working for a startup in Boston and we were competing and also supplying both Google Street View and Bing Maps with virtual tours of restaurants, hotels, like interiors, but they couldn't do. And then, of course, Google started giving it away for free and it's hard to compete with Google when they're giving it free. So I had to find something else. <laughs> That's really interesting. Now, were you were you a developer on that team? Were you doing more of the theoretical, the science portion? Like, what was your role on that project? Always coding, right? From day one, I started. My first coding experience was probably around fourteen years old with Turbo Pascal. From that on, coded every language. So grad school, it's all C, C plus plus, like all the languages for Open CV library, Open Gel libraries. And for my whole career, I was the one who was like, okay, what can we do? Can I show it in action, right? Because the geometry is pretty simple uh, for like stitching panoramas, but actually coding it up, the whole cycle, right? And actually JavaScript was part of it because at some point I was oh. coding only the backend stuff, right? Like all the servers and stitching farms, processing mm -hmm. images. And after a while I was like, well, what if we can show it to the user and the user can like edit right away? I was like, well, how do I actually show image to the user and allow them to add it like on the fly? Well, they have a browser. How do I program something in a browser? So I'm looking around, right? And at that time, it's like Flash, ActionScript, Silverlight. And they're like, whew, well, there's this JavaScript thing. 
let me try programming it. And I tried and I failed miserably, right? JavaScript is an awful language, especially 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I found CoffeeScript, right? And if you have experience with like C++, Java, and C Sharp, you look at CoffeeScript, look, oh, it makes sense. Like, I understand it. I can code it up. And now I started coding up UIs for people to edit the panoramas and tours. And after a while, I was like, oh, I can do everything in JavaScript, right? So CoffeeScript was my bridge into the browser. And after I figured out, oh, if I know JavaScript, I can do everything everywhere, right? Backend, frontend, mobile, robotics, anything, you name it. Then I was like, I'm unstoppable. And that's how I got into JavaScript processing and testing JavaScript especially. So another thing that I found really interesting is, uh, you know, on your Twitter account, your pinned tweet is basically says that your dream job would be to go around to conferences, inventing new stuff, talking to devs, and then writing new tools to solve everyone's problems. Yeah. And uh, you wrote that five years ago, and I'd say you've done a pretty good job. Uh, you list at least 300 different open source projects and utilities uh, that you've shared with the community. And I'm just, I guess I'm curious, sort of, how do you keep finding new problems slash how do you know when you found something that's worth sharing? I mean, I know this is a big part of your personal ethos, and I, but I know like a lot of people, they sit down and they're like, I want to solve problems. And then they're like, but where are the problems? <laughs> you know, how, how are you like, what's your process for sort of tracking what would be worthwhile to investigate? I wish I had perfect answer for me personally, what works and how these projects came about. I was doing something and I noticed that I'm doing something repetitive, right? And then I was like, okay, let me look around. Maybe there is an existing tool that automates even things like uh, release, right? Publishing new NPM module, right? About maybe five, seven years ago, you would have to do all the steps yourself and do like NPM publish, check the tags and everything. Maybe run tests, create a release documentation, then do the same on GitHub. So you would look around and say, is there an NPM library that does that for me? And if not, just write one. Like literally automate your own task so you solve your own problem. And after a while, you're like, okay, well, I'm automating this and there's this little thing missing. Let me quickly create a module to do that, release it by itself, so it's tested, I can come back to it and use it whenever I need to. And after a while, you notice, well, I already have like five tools and 10 libraries and then 50 tools and 100 libraries. And it's fine if someone else creates another version or you create a version of another tool, but it solves your problems slightly better. And after a while, I'm fine with finding something better. So yes, I wrote my own semantic release tools, but now I just use semantic release that everyone uses, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I never want to create those tools again, but they're out there. So solve your own problem. Make it public. Maybe someone else will, you know, use your solution, and that's how it happens. You know, it's interesting because when you get to the level that you're kind of talking about, I mean, where you now have hundreds of projects. I don't know how many of those are, you know, extremely widely used, but I know a lot of them, especially the ones around Cypress, which we'll be talking about shortly, uh, I'm sure are used all over the place. How do you maintain that, right? There's this challenge with open source where the more projects you have, then it steals a certain percentage of your time for maintenance. I know Kent Dodds has done a lot around automation on this. Like, do you have a lot of core teams? Are you doing a lot of automation? Like, how do you stay on top of the maintenance of these projects? That's an excellent question. So I believe there are two parts to that. One, I actually don't have to do a lot of maintenance. And the you know, kind of trick there is to make small standalone tools, right? Let's say you have 300 libraries, right? 
if they were all part of one big package, well, all these things like touching one thing would touch another and so on. So you'd have to actually touch a lot of stuff all the time. By splitting it up into self-contained, isolated things that do just one thing and do it well with their own tests and CI, well, 99% where it's just renovate bot that upgrades dependencies, runs all the tests, boom, and releases new version if necessary. So I don't actually touch that as much, right? But another thing is that every time I have the standalone tool and someone opens a PR or pull request, which does things well, that has tests, and the person really needs the tool and wants to contribute, you know what? I give them access as a maintainer, right? So the challenge is to set it up in a way where you trust someone else to help you with maintenance because they actually might use the tool a lot more than you need it right now. So why don't you like offload this, right? And it doesn't have to be very, you know, heavy process. If you see someone doing like, good pull request it's good enough for me and there is one other thing that i notice people kind of what stops them right it's very they like oh i have a vision for this library and i want everything done my way well guess what if you want everything done your way you'll have to do it yourself right because you're not paying anyone to do it for you right so sometimes i see someone you know maintaining the library that i started and maybe they changing the API a little bit, right? Maybe they're moving in direction where maybe I wouldn't have moved. It's fine. I think it's very decision. It's fair game. If they want to do the effort and I don't agree, I would rather have them do it in a way I don't prefer done, but done, right? Maybe. So just trust other yeah. people. Let them actually move the projects forward, right? Don't sit on that and say, it's mine. No, that's it. I'll spend all my free time kind of maintaining things. I love that, you know, and I think that is, I think that's, there's been a lot of talk recently about open source and open source burnout and um, yeah. the sort of the darker sides, the payment models and such. And I think it's great to hear stories like this of where the model is still working and working well, at least in that community based, uh, you know, offering up the problem, the solutions that work for you and uh, being open to others kind of contributing their, the, you know, their experience as well. I, I mean, I love that. Great. So. Next, I mean, you sort of, well, I mean, this has been happening all along, but I mean, you arrive at Cyprus and I know you kind of take it, you kind of went a couple different places before you landed at Cyprus. And so my first question is just, you know, before we talk about Cyprus specifically and what it is, but what is it that you do at Cyprus? And, you know, what is it about working at Cyprus that has kind of captured your attention that that's been a place that you've loved to kind of sit down and really, you know, explore deeply? Again, two things. <laughs> And, and I'm sorry if I give kind of like this answers, but uh, kind of approach this question from several ways. So I used Cyprus for a year before I joined the company. I was working in financial startup at the time, and we needed something to do end-to-end -end testing for web application. And we looked around, and of course, we had like Nightmare GS test and Casper, you know, all this thing. And then I saw like a demo of Cyprus at the conference. And I was like, wow, this is completely different. I can see my test. I can debug it with time traveling debugger. It uses real browser. I can just look at the dev tools, see everything that has happened. Like this is night and day. And after a year of back and forth with a founder and kind of writing blog posts and in plugins that uh, they convinced me to join. And, and it was a gamble, right? They just raised a little bit of money, but I would take a pay cut, everything, right? 
I, I just thought the tool was so interesting, right? And like my tweet about I want to solve other developers' problems and my own, right? As I described, I thought this is the best tool to solve my own problems, like dog food, my own food, and also solve a problem that every developer has, right? So one thing when I went to grad school, my first specialty or my first focus that was assigned was you know good software engineer practices. I always thought I would work on software quality. And then I kind of went to computer vision, computer graphics, because it's like so interesting. And you know, where else can you play computer games as part of your research, right? Um, but software quality is something that everyone needs, right? Everyone needs their software to work and fix defects and write tests. So when I looked at Cypress, I really think it's number one testing tool right now that allows you to do things that no other test runner can do, right? And so it's a big, big thing for you to find a problem where your solution is either number one or like in a top couple approaches. I think that gives you a huge boost as an engineer, right? Because you can honestly be proud of your work. You can be proud of your team's work and effort. And every time you go to a conference, right? Literally, before COVID, before we all stopped going, when I go to a conference or meetup and I show Cypress to someone, right? First of all, my lights up, like my eyes lit up, right? Because I'm so happy to show like this great thing. And then everyone wants to hug you and give you props. Cypress solves their problem, they're excited to use it, they, you know, they're excited to meet someone who works on the tool. So for me, that was just energy, right? It was flowing not only from me to my work, but from everyone using the tool back to me. Right. So the tool is number one. And and that's like the second part of why I'm so excited and why, like the last four years, right, where we build the company from five people to 50 right now, this was absolutely, you know. Money doesn't, you know, buy happiness, but they can buy you like, uh, um, like a water cycle, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking, right? So that's kind of Cypress, like right, you're right, riding, right, exactly. you're riding, like you're surfing on, on, like on top of a biggest wave, right? And and that's what keeps them going. That's great. Yeah, you know, it's funny because with Cypress, it has it's that kind of software. Like it, it is one of those ones that. Literally, as soon as you show it to somebody, no matter who they are, whether they're peer QA um, that traditionally does manual functional testing or they do automated testing as a developer, everybody smiles. It's, it is just yeah. fun. I mean, I remember the first thing that impressed me about it was the test recorder. And I remember yeah. sitting down with our, again, people that had done QA that had traditionally done manual functional testing. And suddenly it was like, here's a really straightforward way for you to start recording the tests that you're running. And then we can help you clean it up. Um, right. And then and then from there, you have this. And I mean, it makes people super excited. I mean, I think that's the, the promise of it is quite extensive, um, even though that first hook, like you said, no matter, it always inspires people right away. Um, Rob, can I, can I tell you something about that, right? Because this kind of brings the point. So right now we have Vericorder as part of Cypress Core, right? It's still on the beta flag, but it's called Cypress Studio. We always had like an element selector, but now you can actually record the task, click, uh, you know, type all those things. It can even create a new spec file for you and put the commands there, and then you can update it. I personally was always against it, right? Because I think that, for example, myself, I can type the new task like in my code editor, 
and Cypress like watches the spec file and reruns it faster than I can record them. And the big thing when you're doing end-to-end tests, it's not, it's not just command, not just actions on the screen. It's also assertions. So you always want to like act on the page, assert something happened. Act on the page, assert something. That cuts on the flake on a test because the test runner always knows to wait for something to you know to assert before it moves to the next action. But when you're recording the web application, you don't insert assertions, right? You just click and type and click again. So it always like has this extra step of like adding assertions. But here's the thing. Like I said, when you see something being introduced to the software you're working on, and we might not agree, don't be a dictator. Don't say, over my dead body, right? Just say, okay, try it out. Prove to yeah. me by showing it in action that it works. I'll look at feedback from the user, and if 90% of people say, it actually works for my problems, I'll say, I'm glad that I didn't like prevent this, that we tried it out. So. It's, it's one of those things where don't try to control the project 100%. You know, kind of let it sometimes experiment and, and see what happens. Well, I think, you know, and I we'll talk about this a little bit more too, because again, reading some of your blogs, I'm so fascinated with all the non-traditional ways to use Cypress. Uh, and, you know, one of them factors into there as well, which is, uh, you know, even as a useful tool for recreations, you know, somebody has a defect, and they walk through maybe the recorder and they they say, this is how I got it to recreate. You know, we're used to a lot of, a lot of people are used to QA nowadays are quite proficient at sending videos, um, yep. taken in whatever mechanism possible. But what if you can walk there step-by-step step, uh, through all the processes that they went to um, and then run it and debug it and get all of that stuff? I just think that is such a cool promise of it too. Um, like you're saying, it's, it's, even, you know, because I agree, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the days when people would record macros in office yeah. <laughs> back, back before that was like a hidden feature that nobody did anymore. And I remember the sort of, I don't know, you wouldn't call it spaghetti and you wouldn't call it spam, but the superfluous parts that would show up in the macro recorder yeah. from the things that it would yeah. capture that were irrelevant to the thing you were trying to do. So you always had to go in and then trim it down and say, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter. Yeah. But there was still some value in recording yeah. it, especially if you didn't know the commands to do the thing, right. and then you would record it, and you go, "Oh, that's the command." Oh, I know that now for the future. Yeah. Uh, but yes, you're right; it's not perfect. Uh, it has its limitations, you know. But it is uh, powerful for the people that have no other better way to express themselves, and that's what I loved about it. And it couldn't just work, right? Maybe application design in a way with, you know, going around and acting as a user with you know, a few pauses is enough. It's fine, and you can again always learn the commands and add more assertions later. So I know you've written a blog post uh, that went through and sort of answered the question, why Cypress? Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think we haven't really done a great job of stopping and defining Cypress. So, so maybe our first step will be just for the people that are completely unfamiliar with Cypress, maybe give them just the briefest introduction to kind of the gist of the, the technology. But, um, you know, the, the question I had was, the pushback that I get a lot with Cypress, and it's not even specific about Cypress, it's more about end-to-end -end testing in general, is that there is still um, this perception about unit testing as being the pinnacle of all testing. And I think that a lot of people that come from traditionally back-end development or full-stack development or just any type of development where you're used to being able to really identify units, I think that as an industry, as a group, as a community, we just have not done a really good job 
of recontextualizing and understanding what a unit in a user interface truly is. Yeah. What is the actual contract of a component of a user interface um, that you're actually testing in a unit? And so I'm curious, you know, your thoughts and the things that you say when people say, well, it's end-to-end -end testing. You're supposed to have so few of those. They're so expensive. I need unit testing. This isn't a unit tester. Like, you know, start out a little bit with what Cypress is and then why you think it, it you know, that argument maybe doesn't hold weight. Cypress, if you've never seen it, is an end-to-end test runner for anything that runs in the browser. So imagine you have a website or web application. So Cypress literally can open the browser, a real browser, visit the site, or you know your by URL, find the button, whatever is in a in a test script, find the button, click on it, type something more information, then maybe find another button, then maybe submit the form, and then assert that whatever you expect in the page to show up shows up. And Cypress has a lot more built in, so you can observe network traffic, control the cookies interact with your application, control the clock to speed up your application. So it allows you to write very powerful end-to-end tests that act like a real human user using your web application. Now, you're right, absolutely. People come in and say, the testing pyramid has unit tests at the wide bottom of a pyramid for a reason, and the end-to-end -end test at the very top, at the apex with just a few end-to-end -end tests can be written because they're slow, you know, slow to run, slow to write, and so on, and flaky, and all the thing. And I've written unit tests in every framework and every language, you know, in my career. Great. I agree that traditionally unit tests are at the bottom because there are tools in every language that allow you to write unit tests quickly and run them very quickly, right? And end-to-end -end are so few because we didn't have tools that allow you to easily write and run end-to-end tests. And it's produced useful errors, right, from end-to-end tests. Oftentimes, the tools that we had to run end-to-end tests would just give you, hey, it crashed. I could not find the element with like this long selector. And you're like, well, I guess I'll rerun the test. Maybe it'll pass this time. But think about the user. Right? Let's put a focus on someone using your website. Do they care that you exhaustively tested like this layer in your database access code <laughs> with unit tests? They don't. They care if I open the URL, can your software access the database, load my profile and, and display whatever I want to display? That's it. So if you unit tested all your code in this particular place, what if you have a database configuration error? Right? What if someone did not create the user profile scheme, you know, database schema yet? What if someone misconfigured the cores or DNS or bundling is wrong or your framework version doesn't match your application version, right? All these errors that actually can stop the user are not testable by unit tests. Right? And you can say, well, I can do integration tests, right? I can, I can put a few components together and, and test them. Well, like, yes, okay. And then add another layer and another layer, and you end up at end-to-end -end tests. So you can run end-to-end -end tests quite quickly. If you use Cypress, you know, yes, you, you have 10 seconds startup because it's Electron app, it has to load itself. After that, it watches your files and it runs them as soon as you save. Okay. So it's as fast as your application is. And by the way, if your test is slow, 
guess what happens when the user tries to use application? <laughs> yeah, right? right. They experience the same, you know, speed. And recently, we had um, we do webinars, right, with our users, right, with companies that use Cypress and they share the experience. It's their opinion. Of course, we invite people who successfully use Cypress. And recently, we had a webinar with uh, Ansible, but you know, Red Hat Ansible. Um, they have a bunch of UIs that they test using Cypress. So they have end-to-end -end tests, lots of them. Their end-to-end -end tests take five minutes. Their unit tests take 17 minutes. So their end-to-end -end tests are run much faster than unit tests. Because if you think about end-to-end -end tests, we created tools to actually split up and run all the end-to-end -end tests in parallel with Cypress. To the user, it's like one flag. And when you spin more CI machines, everything is parallelized. You don't have to do anything. We even show you like what's the speed if you add one machine, two machine, three machine, or like or subtract machine. Like what would be the exact timing? And they have one machine running all the unit tests, so it, it takes like three times longer. So don't tell me that you cannot run end-to-end -end tests fast, right? We proved it in, in production, so to speak. It just takes uh, maybe a different architecture of a test runner and maybe rethinking of a problem. But to me. End-to-end test is, you know, the king feature right now. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, I think it's exactly right. I, I, the, a lot of the pain that I experience in the applications that I'm working on are related to either differences in the browsers. Yeah. I mean, I have, uh, due to some internationalization stuff, logged more bugs around the INTL library in various browser implementations than I ever thought I was going to. Um, and things related to that. And you know, you notice, I think, in the, the, the teams that are maybe the least helped by unit testing is when you look at some of the unit testing or the integration testing. Again, those things are great. Like the testing library yeah. and Jess and Enzyme oh. and what that's gotten people to think, like, first of all, we're yeah. not, uh, please listen, those things are great and those need to be in your portfolio. Yeah. But I think I've been on a lot of teams where just you end up mocking everything away that the amount of certainty yeah. you have from the tests is actually surprisingly low relative to what you think based on lines covered or you right. know cases covered and things like that. So great. So you know, I just sort of tipped my hand at one of my favorite features of Cypress over the last couple of years, and that was support for for additional browsers. You know, if you're somebody that's evaluated Cypress in the past and you passed on it because it only supported Chrome or it was in a relatively fewer browsers, uh, take a look again. Um, they have that wider support. So if you haven't checked back in, definitely do, because now you can have all those benefits that you were wishing you could have, but you just couldn't get someone to sign off on it before. Uh, but besides that feature, you know, what are the features that you guys are working on or just released or are releasing soon that have you the most excited? So we just released a much better network control. So from Cypress end-to-end task, you will be able to spy or stop or rewrite any request, right? So you can rewrite the page itself, you can rewrite the code, rewrite CSS, right? Like all, do all those things on the fly. But the most exciting feature that we just released, it used to be on the flag, you know, kind of hidden. Now we like everyone tried is component testing. So we always say end-to-end -end test runner that loads visits the URL, right? You have to have server and then bundle the code, serve it, and we load the full page. For last I want to say almost three years. So I started this work, I think, December 31st, 
of 2016, right? Kind of like before, right before New Year's, I was like sitting around, let me like try like quickly hacking this together. But basically the idea is all the people using modern frameworks, I mean, Cypress is framework agnostic, it just works with a browser. But all the people working with modern frameworks, they usually write components, right? In React, Vue, Angular, Svelte, you name it. Every framework kind of allows you to write components that ultimately will be on a page. So how do you test those components? Because components can be quite large, right? Ultimately, for example, React <laughs> yep. app or Angular app, it's one big app component that is, has other components as like a children tree. So you can kind of go all the way from smallest components all the way to your app, right, as a component. So we decided, why don't we actually allow you to mount those components, framework-specific components, in a real browser, where Cypress usually visits a page, but instead of visiting the page, you'll just say mount and whatever Angular component, view component, React component. After you mount, which is framework-specific, after that, just interact with that component as using any ordinary Cypress commands like Cypress click, Cypress get, and so on. Because after you mount it, it starts running. Almost like a scaffolded or bootstrap mini web application. And then you have real browser, not just DOM emulation. You can debug everything because there is the same command log, time traveling debugger, dev tools with all your React tools, view tools, whatever you want, right? Network control, clock control, all the nice goodies from end-to-end -end testing world, but for components, which That's is so unbelievable good. because it, 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 it's a superpower, right? All of a sudden, you stop writing unit tests that just assert that the component is mounted, and now you start writing tests that say, component is mounted, fetches the data, shows the data, reacts to clicks, for example, right? Or fetches periodically, all this hard, asynchronous problems that were super painful to test before. Now it's like, yeah, just click. It should fetch data and should show the data. Boom. I love what this does for test-driven design development, excuse me, yeah. for developers. That you don't have to wait. Um, you know, I mean, I guess you could run it against your local server, but even still, just Anything to cut down any barriers around letting developers have more access to more testing data at the moment they're making the changes and throughout that whole process, I think that's instantly has me super excited. Like to make this a tool that people just have open always is, uh, you know, really, really cool. It is really cool. And if you see it in action and like our team from Cypress is already publishing videos, right doing blog posts uh, and, and you will see as soon as you mount the component but if you touch css you touch components you know javascript you change the spec file where you're testing it it automatically reruns the test right because it watches all the files it bundles all the files using your bundler right so it happens very quickly and instantly so keep cypress open on one side of your screen keep your code editor on another and just start writing your component. And for test-driven development, especially because you can stop network, you don't need the backend, right? You can control even the calls inside the components, you can pass mocks to it, right? It's just instant playground and instant test runner. So win, win, win. <laughs> 
Yeah, again, I mean, it's what we started by saying is that, like, I don't know what it is about the way that y'all are putting this together or just the tech itself, but anytime you hear a new feature or just the way it's built, you're just like, yeah, that sounds really good. I actually would like that now. I mean, you can have it now. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's great. Now, if people are using this and they have feedback, either, you know, I like... I don't know what would be a case, but you know, I, I like this feature that I use in testing library yeah. or I test things in this way. I did the component thing and I don't really see how to recreate that. You know, what are some of the best ways that people can either get involved, contribute, give feedback um, on these kinds of things? We, we strive to receive as much feedback. Like you said, the exciting features are not because we are super geniuses. Exciting features because we listen to feedback and we see users using Cypress and maybe wishing for something else. So if you want to give feedback, we have discussions on our GitHub project, right? So uh, Cypress-io slash Cypress on GitHub. We have discussions where you can ask questions, maybe propose something. If you do have problems, and you know, definitely open an issue. We love when people open an issue, and we have one big mono repo where there is a test runner and the component testing is part of it. So definitely open the component testing questions and feedback there as well. And we also have discourse channel right now. So if you go to our documentation, there is a link to discourse. So you can chat and there are channels for each framework specific questions. So ask us about Vue or React or Angle and so on. By the way, so officially we support Vue and React, but there is nothing stopping us from doing Angular and Svelte. In fact, I have libraries for all those frameworks. It's just we haven't ported them into the new way of component gotcha. testing, right? There's just a dev server that's different, but we'll port them for sure. Are those uh, so, just like, would those just be additional libraries? Because I know you do a lot of plugins. Is this core library stuff or are these plugins? Like if somebody's using Ember and they love it or Lit Element or uh, I guess Lit, they just announced it's changing its name. Uh, and that's what they're passionate about. Is this something that people could get involved in making their own bindings or is this in core? Like how, how does that work? This is one of the interesting things about Cypress. Cypress is just JavaScript, right? If you can write application code, you can like adjust Cypress to your needs by writing a plugin. Plugins could be anything, right? So for a while, all the component testing adapters, they only provide mount command, right? All these were completely external to the core, completely. Like I kept them under my GitHub space. They never use anything like forbidden, right? Or, you know, super secret API to run. They literally just did their thing and people did, you know, copy pasted things to create those adapters plugins for our frameworks. Right now, for example, the Cypress React, Cypress View are part of a core mono repo, so we move them into the core, but they still are separate NPM packages, so we can develop them faster. If you want to create one for Ember, just look at our example code, and we do have some documentation, and literally copy paste and, and create your plugin and start using it. Like there's nothing that you need from us to create a plugin for any framework. That's awesome. Um, I, you know, again, it just—I think I see why you love working here so much. It'd be so much in your ethos of, of you know, giving people ways to be empowered and to contribute to solve their own problems. Now, um, you know, I know that you love to answer people's questions, and you're very, uh, from what I can tell, you're very free uh, with helping people out. But I, what I love about it is that you kind of seem to have this belief that answering a question shouldn't 
be an isolated thing. It shouldn't be a Twitter exchange. It shouldn't just be a comment on discourse, uh, but it should be something more permanent. And what I was just curious if you could kind of explain to people briefly, you know, your pitch for the right way to answer a question, especially if you're working on a product or you have existing documentation. So here's my pitch to everyone, right? It's fine to answer questions on Twitter, in private, over the phone. It just doesn't scale, right? Imagine someone comes to me and asks, like, how to do X in Cyprus? I can answer your question, right? And usually if I'm at a conference, I meet you like in person somewhere, I'll answer it like no problems. But then I'm thinking not about just you, but the 10 people after you who will ask the same question. Do I want to answer? Probably not. So as soon as I see a question, usually ask the second time, I'm thinking there's something missing in our documentation, right? And I go back to our documentation at Cyprus and I try to search, like using your verbatim question, like, do you find an answer? And most often than not, I'll find something relevant, right? And then I go to the documentation and I might clarify it maybe, you know, kind of adjust it, maybe make it a little bit more discoverable if you search, right? Maybe add a little bit more description test. But oftentimes I don't find an answer and I say, oh yeah, I, I can kind of understand how to do that. But you as a user would have to write something, struggle, put like several components and answers together. So then I was like, I don't want you to do that. So I'll go back to our example project or recipes repo or documentation and I'll just add a section like add example to that command add example to a recipe right as soon as it passes the test that means we use cypress to test our documentation it gets deployed and then scrape so i have a couple presentations where i talk about how important it is to have good documentation not just but keeps growing right so the user can ask uh, like right. fine questions but it has to be really searchable and you have to test your search to make sure it actually mm -hmm. finds things like my favorite thing for Cypress documentation is to go back to Algolia dashboard and look at the section that says queries with no search results, no search hits, right? So users were trying to find something and our documentation could not answer it. And I go and I fill those gaps and I look again at that, you know, dashboard like in a month just to make sure there are no new questions with an unanswered. And I do it all the time. It's on a loop. And people, and right now I actually looked recently, I have more pull requests open by myself as an offer to Cypress documentation repository than to Cypress itself, which to me, you, you can say, oh, you're just slacking. Maybe, right? Or maybe. <laughs> maybe both, yeah, who knows? Maybe both. <laughs> maybe I found that the perfect investment of my time right now is to quickly polyfill all the gaps with people experience problems because I know the answers. And if I can, you know, provide answers so that the next hundred people find the answer themselves, just think how happy the users would be. So that's what I'm doing. I, I, I mean, I love it. I mean, we advocate a lot for people, especially juniors that join teams that maybe have poor documentation. This is something similar to what we say, which is yeah. you're going to be asking a lot of questions. And if you don't think it, if you don't find it in the doc, if they can't point you to the documentation that says it, write that documentation. You write, yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll yeah. learn it while you write it and you'll appreciate that you wrote it down and so will everybody else. Uh, but the other part that I like about it is just that, you know, there's been a lot of talk 
in tech Twitter and just all over, people have been talking about scale and people wanting to become uh, you know, helpful to the most amount of people. What I love about your solution is it isn't just saying, well, answering questions doesn't scale, so I'm just going to do training resources or something. And there's, no, first of all, nothing wrong with doing that. But what I like about it is it's a way to scale it from still the person-centric approach. It's still one person asking a question, getting an answer. Right. That core value doesn't change, but you make sure that everybody else gets the same answer. And exactly, you know, I I just think you know for anybody that's looking for ways to scale their impact or to break into any or developer experience, evangelism, any of those types of things, I I, I like this model as a way to um, to help automate that and develop um, you know those helpful resources. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, the last piece that a fun thing that I saw that I wanted to talk about was screen scraping. So I have done screen scraping in the past using, I guess, what I consider to be the traditional, just some node scripts that connect and yeah. grab the HTML and maybe, you know, do some query select alls to move around and things like that and get the data I need to move on. Uh, but I saw you at a post and a whole presentation about how to use Cypress to do this. So I guess what I love about it is that it shows how, how, uh, flexible Cypress is to accomplish more than what you, it's not just testing y'all. It's just a way to use things in a browser really, really easily. But it's kind of curious if you could talk about a little bit about what that was about and kind of, uh, you know, just kind of get people inspired by what you did there. Um, and you know, what, what your goal was. So my goal was to solve my own problem as always. Right. So I have a lot of presentations done, a lot of uh, decks and I use slides.com to do my presentations. And it uses Reveal.js under the hood. This is a great HTML5 presentation engine. So the author of Reveal.js, Hakim, he runs slides.com. He works on slides.com. So they use Cypress to test their slides.com. We use slides.com to do presentations. So it's kind of like a circle of love and life. But anyway, I had more than 100 presentations. And oftentimes, I cannot find a right slide to send someone as an answer, for example, or to send someone because the presentation describes the solution. And I was thinking, how can I actually search all my presentations? So the first thing in search is you have to find the content, right, before you can scrape it. And obviously you can write a Node.js script that will go to slides.com, fetch HTML, you know, HTML content, then maybe use like something library like Cheerio to parse it and then grab all the slide links and then maybe scrape it. You can do that. There's nothing wrong. But if it's working, then you don't know, or if it stops working, you have no idea why, right? It's kind of like black box. And so I was like, Cypress is a testing tool. We don't think it's good general automation tool because it has so much built in and so many checks built in that it might not be as performant as dedicated scraping automation tool. But I thought, okay, going to visiting the page, slides.com slash Bakhmutov, finding all the deck links, finding all the data set attributes for description and like scraping stuff, Cypress can do that. So yes, I could write the script, but using Cypress, I can see what the script is doing and if it's doing something wrong, I can you know, quickly understand, debug it, um, and fix it. So right now, I'll, you know, stay tuned, go to my blog post, blog, read the first blog post. I just got all the you know, kind of descriptions and meta information from the decks. Now I can actually start scraping it. And I'm still not totally sure what I'm going to do to scrape. 
will I just feed it to Algolia, uh, you know, tool, which is like a Docker image, or will I scrape myself? I'm not sure yet, right? Yeah. But the first part was done is in Cypress. Absolutely. And I love, I, I don't know which example it was, but it was pulling it down and then running a GitHub action that would compare yeah. if there were changes and automatically upload. I was like, suddenly my inspiration bells, I was like, uh, you know, I think that's what's cool about finding novel solutions in blog posts like this is just the inspiration it gives you. Like, yeah. okay, that's not my problem, but I have so many problems that are like that. And I bet I could transform my problem into something more like your problem. I mean, from your academic background too, that's probably something you're very used to doing. Is, uh, everything, is a, everything is a you know, graph traversal problem, right? That's how like all these algorithms, they know the complexity because they can map it one-to-one -to, -one to the graph traversal. And they're like, oh, yeah, traveling sales and you know, complexity of that. Uh, but uh, I, I see people using Cypress in novel ways Sometimes, for example, someone was using it to get a COVID appointment, right? So it was like refreshing the page, <laughs> checking, okay. yeah. right? Uh, someone was using it recently to buy like PS5, like PlayStation oh, yeah. 5, there right? Um, I don't think I've seen anything nefarious, right? Nobody was using it to like, you know, mine Bitcoin or anything. But people use the tool and they think it gives them something interesting for debuggability purposes. So even though it's not purposely built for scrape. Great. Um, now that we are kind of winding, winding down, uh, recently it was uh, Earth Day and um, hopefully everybody got out and, and found ways to celebrate. But, uh, you know, Gleb, I know it's a big passion of yours. It's in a lot of your presentations. You know, you're very passionate about climate change and the kind of climate crisis that we're in and the steps that people should take to address that. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to make your pitch, tell people how they can find more information, how they can get involved locally and make a difference. Uh, thank you. This is a very important topic to everyone, I think. To our generation, we'll be fully affected, right? Um, and to the future generation, I usually start all my presentations with a slide or two, kind of reminding we have a problem. And the best solution is to find a climate organization in your town, city, state, and just maybe attend the meeting, right? Right now, virtually, whenever possible, in person, you'll find a group of people working on a problem and they probably already have connections to, you know, your state government, to your city government, maybe to personal actions. You can do personal actions as much as you want, right? I'm trying to, for example, to switch everything to electricity in my house. Mm -hmm. Those things are easy to control. A bigger picture, we have to you know, change the system. And that's where you have to lobby city government, state government, and your country government. So I'm trying to do all three, but you have to be part of organization. You, can that, you cannot do it by yourself. Even if you're Bill Gates, he cannot do it by himself. But as a group of people, we can. State of Massachusetts just passed a very good, nice climate roadmap bill, the first in 12 years, despite government's objection, governor's objections, right, and vetoes. We still overruled him because so many climate organizations came together and keep, kept calling and visiting and lobbying, and we've done it. Um, and just one quick shout out. Recently, a person asked me if I can, you know, set up a GitHub sponsors page. And I was like, I never thought about it. Like, you know, I have salary from Cypress. But then I was like, okay. So I set up a you know, GitHub sponsors page. And as I promised, uh, $75 were donated. And today I donated them all to a climate organization, 350 Massachusetts chapter. 
So That's every great. month, everything that people donate, I'll just straight donate to a climate organization, you know, just picking whoever I see doing a, a great job that month. So find an organization, donate time or money, and we'll solve it. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, this podcast was supposedly about Cyprus, but I think in the end, it ended up being about ways to scale your own impact. And, yes. you know, you're right. I think we can absolutely and should absolutely do things um, personally in our own lives to minimize our own impacts. But, you know, in order to make the kind of changes that need to be made, we need to find ways to scale. And I love that you're directing people to organizations in concrete ways uh, that they can actually, um, you know, join other voices and and magnify that impact. So that's that's a great call to action again. And well, it's a great call to action any day, but certainly around Earth Day, uh, yeah. that's appreciated as well. Well, that is it for today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern Web Podcast on Cyprus. Thank you, of course, to our guest, Gleb, and for, for all the insights that you've given us. As we say, uh, the conversation does not need to stop here. You can find Gleb on Twitter at Bakhmutov. That's at B-A-H-M-U-T-O-V. And you can find me online at RoboCell. That's R-O-B-O-C-E-L-L. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Of course, thank you to Kendo React, our sponsor today as well, for sponsoring this podcast. And uh, we'll see you all next time. podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Come on, let's go, cause we got a show for you.